Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, joining us today via Skype is political scientist Brendan Nyhan. He is the Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research at the University of Michigan, and also co-founded the popular blog Spin Sanity, which ran from 2001 to 2004, monitoring political misinformation. Brendan's here to talk to us about his recent research on why false beliefs are so persistent. Brendan, welcome. Thank you. So, Brendan, um, is it true that uh, we're wasting our time as skeptics because, in fact, we, you can't change people's minds even if you give them correct information? Well, I don't want to say anyone is, is wasting their time or I've, <laughs> I've wasted a substantial portion of my life, uh, but it's a lot harder than people think. And, and I guess that's one of the, the messages that I've tried to drive, to drive home is, is, is just that um, there are lots of reasons to expect that these messages won't work and we need to think harder about which messages will work. So can you, can you summarize for us some of the reasons why uh, these messages don't work or some of the evidence that you've found for, for these messages not working? Sure. Well, one of the problems is people, um, to, to at least some extent, expose themselves to information um, that is consistent with their predispositions. So liberals are going to be more likely to read liberal blogs. Conservatives are going to be more likely to read conservative blogs or newspapers or Fox News or whatever the case may be. So... The first problem is people are tending to be exposed to information that's consistent with their beliefs, at least to some extent, and that's going to limit how much uh, information you receive that's going to contradict your predispositions, including factual information. And then the second problem is even if you are exposed to that information, some of the time at least you may reject it. And what we found in our research is that when we give people mock news articles and that mock news article includes corrective information about some misperception, those corrections frequently fail to have any effect and in some cases actually make the misperception worse. So what uh, would be an example of a misperception that you tested or that prevails in the general public? Well, so one example we looked at was the belief that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction before the U.S. invasion, immediately mm -hmm. before the U.S. invasion. And what we found was that conservatives who were exposed to a correction in the fall of 2005 when we conducted our first experiment actually became more likely to say that Saddam did have weapons before the U.S. invaded. Hmm. Um, and we've also found evidence of liberals resisting information, uh, corrections as well with things like believing that George Bush banned all stem cell research in this country. Um, so this, this seems to be a pretty pervasive problem, and I think it helps, it helps us understand why these misperceptions are so difficult to get rid of from believing Bush, uh, the Bush administration was behind 9-11 to um, currently, for instance, uh, thinking Barack Obama is a Muslim. 
So does, do these uh, effects cut across, um, say, age groups and gender, or did you guys take it, were able to take that into account? Well, so this is this experimental research primarily with college students. So okay. we, we haven't we haven't looked at uh, we haven't broken the effects down by age. Uh, I don't have any strong reason to believe the effects um, would get better if we weren't looking at college students. In some ways, college students are relatively pliable. Um, you know, people become more uh, inflexible in middle age, right? Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've, I've met a couple of those, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no one comes to mind, Massimo. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and and uh, in terms of gender, we haven't found any significant differences uh, to this point. What about in, in the general public? When you look at polls, I mean, there there are a lot of false beliefs that have just continued, that just refuse to die over the years. I'm sure you have a whole host of examples. Um, is there any, do you know of any correlations uh, with other demographic features between, uh, or b- between people's demographics and their likelihood of believing false things? Well, you know, it's interesting. So one of the things that, that often comes up when I talk about this is, is, people tend to assume that these beliefs are a function of ignorance. And I think that's too simplistic. It is true that in general, being more educated or more knowledgeable about politics is correlated with having lower levels of these misperceptions in general. But what, what we actually find, at least in some cases, is that the people who are, for certain kinds of misperceptions, the people who are more knowledgeable and ideological or partisan often are the most able to resist corrective information they can they can think of other reasons why their initial belief was true and they can they they they've been exposed to more information and they're better able to defend whatever belief they're clinging to so this isn't it's not really a simple story about education and and knowledge uh because of that and i think that's something that maybe a lot of people don't realize. Well, that reminds me of, you know, I've had experience over the years uh, debating, for instance, uh, or giving talks to uh, creationists. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, by training, I'm, I'm an evolutionary biologist. And um, it was remarkable how often you would see these people who were clearly intelligent, that there was no question of, you know, be, being stupid, uh, who would come up with really interesting, really convoluted uh, reasons for supporting their their side. And it was an interesting challenge to, to do the debate, or it was an interesting challenge to talk, to talk to them. They were fundamentally wrong, in my opinion, of course, and, and according to sort of ge- science more in general. But it was surprising how well-crafted those arguments were. And clearly, these were people who actually were both intelligent and had spent a lot of time reading uh, about the topic, except that they were presumably reading very, very selectively. So you know, they were, they were reading only essentially one side of the argument and not, not, not the other at all. So that fits in the general pattern you're talking about. That's right. That's right. I mean, there, there were uh, some very elaborate theories, for instance, of uh, conspiracies related to 9-11, in some cases produced by people with advanced degrees. Uh, Popular Mechanics wrote a whole book refuting them uh, because they were so elaborate and uh, convoluted that, that non-scientists actually couldn't, in some cases, you know, understand, you know, they couldn't evaluate the evidence. And so, um, we, we, you know, when you're, when you're confronting people like that, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult. And, um, you know, and, and, that, and that's a problem that crops up again and again. Um, but just to get back to the education knowledge point, just to give your, your listeners kind of a more tangible example, um, one of the other political scientist bloggers out there, John Sides from George Washington University, um, broke down the most recent Pew poll 
of belief that Obama is a Muslim and showed that more educated Republicans had actually increased their belief that Obama was a Muslim more than lesser educated Republicans. And that's interesting. So in the past, that, that had been a misperception that was more associated, uh, you know, more prevalent among people with lower education. And now that's actually flipped and they've actually reversed positions. So you think that that is so, – so there is evidence from the cognitive sciences that um, very smart people are actually particularly good at rationalizing their arguments. I mean it comes with the territory of being smart. You know, you can come up with really interesting arguments and really creative arguments to essentially defend your positions. Uh, so, again, that seems to fit what you're saying. The more you know about something and the smarter you are, uh, if you're however, uh, wearing some very large ideological blinds, uh, then you, it's very difficult for you to get out of that, of that situation. That's right. That's right. Well, and the, I think the other important factor, at least as, as, as in terms of what we think is going on, my co-author, Jason Reifler, and I, is that... This information is is threatening to people. Um, it's threatening to your self concept to be told that something you believe is wrong, um, and that's what's different about this than than simple ignorance. There are lots of things that we don't know the correct answer to, but we have no particular allegiance to the answer we would we would guess. Um, you know, if you ask people who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court, most Americans don't know, but they don't particularly care if their guess is right or not. Um, but if you tell them that some politically salient belief they have isn't true, that's actually much more threatening. And that seems to be what drives the process of trying to come up with these reasons that your initial belief was correct. Brendan, one interesting point that I encountered on your blog recently relates to how we should actually interpret it when people claim in surveys to believe something like, say, that Obama is a Muslim. So it may be the case that they don't actually believe that to be true, but that answering the question that way is just their way of expressing their vehement dislike, say, of, of Obama. And so either that could be a strategic choice, they're trying to somehow hurt him in the polls, or, or it's just an emotional one, they're lashing out, or you know they don't like the idea of agreeing to anything that seems positive about Obama. So is there any way for pollsters or for researchers to distinguish that kind of response from the kind that would represent a genuine belief in the claim? It's very difficult. Uh, this is a question a lot of people are, are interested in. This theory has been circulating uh, as, as people talk about this, this, this finding that the Muslim misperception appears to have increased when there's you know, no factual basis for it. Um, it. It's very difficult to test. There are some ways to try to, to try to get around the problem, but fundamentally as researchers, we can't look into your brain. Um, even people who, who hook subjects up to MRI machines can't really know what people are thinking and when they're really telling you the truth or not. Um, and, and so it's very hard. Some of my readers on my blog have said, well, what if you just ask people what they really think? But of course that has the same problem. It's an endless regress of, of strategic deception potentially. So, um, you know, there's at, at some point we have to take people at their word. And, uh, you know, if, you, you ask the question a lot of different ways and see how the responses compare and then hopefully get a handle on who's sincere and who's not. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me, however, and this point has been raised in connection with your research and, and, uh, and similar kinds of research, uh, this goes right at the core, of course, of one of the fundamental assumptions about a democratic system, right? That we, we assume that democracy works better and better uh, as more and more people are well-informed, well-educated, uh, because they can make uh, more sensible, rational uh, uh, choices. But um, that, this kind of research seems to at least seriously question that kind of assumption. What are the consequences? I mean, should we just give it up? <laughs> no, no, I would not say that at all. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> Please let um, Rationally Speaking not be the podcast that goes on record right, saying we should th- just give up. This could be the last be episode of Rationally Speaking, right? right? <laughs> go, go We're your hanging bombs, up our headphones. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, well I, I guess I would say two things. Um, it, it certainly is a concern and I, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, I think we as a society need to think harder about the ways in which um, we can try to, you know, address this problem. Um, and and I, I think there are some strategies for doing that. In particular, I've argued for being harsher on the people who promote this sort of misinformation. The, the realities of human psychology are such that correcting these things is is a very difficult proposition in the best of circumstances. And there are no magic wands we can wave to, to, to put the gene, you know, I'm mixing metaphors to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, but what, what I think we can do is be harsher on the elites who put these things out there. Um, you know, I've, I've called for naming and shaming the, the promoters of misinformation and for the media to take responsibility about giving these people access to the megaphone uh, and, and creating these myths. So I think that's the first point is that um, there are things we can do. The second point I would make, and this is something that political science has contributed, is that the aggregate is, is a lot smarter than the individual. There's actually some really nice properties of democracy in the aggregate. The aggregate uh, public opinion is, is, I would say, far more sensible than individual public opinion. And, and there's some nice work showing that the collective ideological preferences of the public move in a fairly sensible way in response to events and things like that. So um, if we look too closely at the individual level, I think we c- it, it often can distract us from the fact that the, the aggregate uh, in the aggregate, the public is, 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 is often smarter than we give it credit for. So it's, it's sort of uh, flipping around the, the whole idea that if, um, if democracy is done by people who don't know much or they're sort of ignorant or not, not well informed and so on and so forth, it becomes mob rule. Are you suggesting that actually mob rule is better because on average, on, on, in aggregates are actually behaving more sensibly than individuals? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can certainly question these things, you know, the, 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 the macro outcomes aren't perfect, but there's some pretty nice evidence that, you know, what, you know, the public responds to the state of the economy when it votes for president, the public becomes more liberal when there's a conservative president and vice versa. Um, there's some nice things and, you know, they're not always necessarily optimal. It depends on your point of view. Um, but they're certainly far more, I think, coherent than any individual person is going to be. And, and, and so, you know, as much as these misperceptions are a problem, I, I guess I think I always, you know, want to, you know, remind, you know, it's important to remind ourselves that 
democracy doesn't doesn't rise or fall whether based on whether people know the answers to a hundred uh, trivia questions because fortunately, they won't. fortunately for that um, but I want to go back for a second to, to, to the first point that you were making a, a couple of minutes ago so there, there are two interesting um, sort of byproduct of, of the point you were making about um, uh, the, sh- the shaming game basically uh, so one is that basically that is that that idea uh, is based on the assumption which I think is actually corroborated obviously you write um, by the literature that emotional responses um, are are much stronger than intellectual responses so that you know you can point out all you want the facts but if you actually shame somebody if you actually use a strong emotional drive you get um, better results than if you're using a purely intellectual one uh, so that's that's an interesting uh, sort of turning around of, of the classical position between emotions and reason now you're, you're suggesting essentially to use emotion in order to bring reason back in line in a more reasonable, in, in a more fashionable, more sensible uh, uh, position. Is that, I understand correctly what you were saying? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think we should be angry uh, uh, about, about people who, who, who lie to the public. And we're, we're not. I, you know, there's a, you know, to the extent you, you interact with political elites, I think I've found that they're, they're 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 largely cynical about these things. There's very little outrage, and I think there should be more. And I think it should be a bipartisan, nonpartisan sort of outrage. Um, <laughs> but that's very hard to cultivate. Um, you know, I, I I wrote stories about Michael Moore being irresponsible with the facts back in 2002, 2003. We would send them around, and people would say, "Oh, everyone knows Michael Moore is you know <laughs> is dishonest." Right. But meanwhile, millions of people didn't, and and you hang on his every word. So. Um, you know, I, I want to recultivate that sense of outrage for sure. Brendan, is um, the naming and shaming strategy, uh, some of our, our commenters on the blog expressed some skepticism over whether that is a feasible strategy just because, I mean, among, among other reasons, the, the mainstream media seems to have found a pretty you know, profitable approach of just pandering to what their viewers or readers want to hear, um, many establishments at least. And so um, is there, does this strategy rely on, on reporters and news anchors and talk show hosts being willing to sort of stick their necks out there, you know, in the service of the truth? Or is this something that um, outsiders can do? I'd say a combination of both. Um, you're certainly right that the, the incentives in many cases don't point in the direction of, of, of naming and shaming, at least of, especially of naming and shaming your own side. Right, um, right. But, but I do think that the, the, the level of differentiation among media outlets has become such that actually can become a, a, a calling card, a way to differentiate yourself. And more media outlets are trying it. Um, newspapers, I think, have actually gotten more interested in fact-checking because the basic providing of news has become such a commodity. And there's mm. so little... Um, that they can add because everyone has already read the story online or, or whatever. So they're looking for these places where they can add value. So, you know, it's certainly not a blanket solution, but I think it has, I think it has hope. There is a, however, another consideration, I guess, in, uh, in more of the long term, which is, Despite the rather disheartening conclusions of these kinds of studies in the, in the short term, it's certainly indubitable that 
uh, people do change their mind uh, over over lifetime periods, and certainly uh, societies change their collective minds about issues. I mean, things that uh, are no longer debatable today and they're accepted in, in modern American society, for instance, were highly debatable 50 years ago or 100 years ago, you know, women voting rights for, for, for one thing. Um, so things do change, which means that people do change their mind. Now, uh, there is a model within science uh, that is also highly debated um, that this happens not because people necessarily change, a lot of people necessarily change their mind, but because in the words, uh, in the famous words of, of physicist Max Planck, uh, the older generation of scientists simply dies um, and, or retires, and so the new generation has actually come up, comes up exposed to the new ideas already and more ready to accept the new ideas. Do you think that a similar dynamic uh, that seems to be holding within science to some extent could hold for society at large, which, is, which means that, in other words, societal change is slower than an individual changing mind precisely because it actually takes a whole generation or more uh, for certain ideas to sink in? On some issues, yes, for sure. Um, on, on the sorts of misperceptions that I deal with, I don't know. Um, I, I, th- I think they're... They, they ebb and flow in in a in a more short term sense. So I think I think you could certainly make an argument mu- along those lines about race, and now with gay marriage, right. um, we're seeing these sort of generational shifts. Now those there may be corresponding shifts in factual beliefs. I don't know. So that actually ties into a question that I had, which is there do seem to be some of these beliefs that seem really intractable, and then if not die out, then at least wane. So you earlier you raised the example of the, the belief that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That belief seems to have waned. Is that right? And why can you account for why something like that might go away, but other beliefs wouldn't? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's largely elite-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, these, these beliefs are, in a certain sense, become part of the ideology of a given side. And once elites de-emphasize that belief, it it appeared to to drop off. Uh, although it took a long time, right? Um, so the Bush administration moved away from that rationale for the war. Other conservatives did as well, and and it seems to have tailed off to a kind of a more hardcore set of true believers. Um, so I, I think you know we can see these these things have been flow. But I will say there are some things that appear to be more longer term. So, so a good example is the belief that tax cuts increase revenue uh, relative to the same scenario in which taxes aren't cut. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a belief that has been, has become prominent in the conservative movement and has stayed that way for about 30 years now. And it shows no signs of going anywhere, even though virtually no serious economist believes that to be true. And even the Bush administration's economists uh, a number of them are on record as saying it is not true, hmm. um, and and you know that that seems to be central to the kind of the ideology of the conservative movement, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere as a result. Right. So, so to some extent, it's I guess not surprising that ideology. I mean, you, that's an interesting word to bring into this this discussion, right? Now, the fact that ideology is impervious to to uh, factual. Uh, contradiction to me is almost part of the definition of ideology. I mean, I, I tend not to have a particularly positive view of the word ideology. That is, ideas is one thing, political positions is one thing, but an ideology to me implies that you're actually committed to a certain way of thinking, uh, essentially, regardless uh, of, of what's uh, really out there in the, in, in the world. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, somebody who holds a strong ideological position would be more impervious 
to uh, facts or, or data that would change it. Um, but what you are saying, it seems to me that one of the implications, uh, perhaps in, from my perspective, optimistic or quasi-optimistic uh, implication of what you were saying is that, in fact, there is a large role, a very important role, that can be played by both the media and what I would uh, consider intellectuals at large. You refer, in, uh, you refer to them as, as the leaders or the elites. Uh, so people who actually are supposed to be speaking truth to power, those people that are supposed to, in fact, uh, challenge uh, the, the received opinion, those people that are supposed to be doing the shaming game, essentially, those actually become even more important according to the results of your, your current research, right? I, I, would, I would think so. Um, the, the, the problem is, and one of the things we lack as a society, are elites that command the res- command respect across the spectrum. Right. So, so one of the challenges that we've had is if you're trying to create an effective correction, what source should that correction come from? Uh, many people on both sides are now distrustful of the media, so that's that's out. And you know, almost anyone can be accused of having some sort of hidden agenda, so it becomes very difficult. Um, one of the things we've proposed is looking for people speaking against their own self-interest. So conservatives who will say that Obama's health care reform does not include death panels. Right. Uh, or liberals who say that the Bush administration was not complicit in 9-11. Um, it's a low bar but, there. But that is a low bar. But <laughs> sometimes it's pretty hard to get people to go on the record about their own side. Right. Um, but, you know, we need... So, so what we need are elites who are willing to say those things. It's easy to say things that are supportive of your own, your own side, so to speak. It's harder to say them uh, about things that make your side look bad. And those, that, I think that's a real responsibility for elites going forward. And unfortunately, given the um, increasingly bipartisan, I mean, so sorry, <laughs> increasingly non-bipartisan uh, situation in Washington, I think that, that is a problem, right? I mean, do, do I have the impression, uh, you know, I've been in this country only for 20 years, but I keep reading uh, about the fact that um, uh, previously, in, dec- in decades before that, there was actually such a thing occasionally as bipartisanship, meaning, meaning that people really were able to c- talk across the aisle and occasionally even to agree on certain things or at least to agree to disagree. Uh, while the climate over the last several years seems to be very far from that position, which I would guess makes it more difficult to find somebody uh, of the type that you were talking about, somebody on, on, uh, who is willing and able to criticize his own side. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the caveat I would put on that is that the, the, that experience of, of, of mid-century, mid-20th century bipartisanship, which, which the old guard in Washington are so fond of, um, was in some ways an accident of the way that race uh, played out in this country by creating this 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 conservative block within the Democratic Party that essentially created a three party structure hmm. uh, in Congress and kind of blocked the kind of natural polarization we would observe in a two party system. So if you actually look at the history of Congress, that's that's kind of an odd interlude. From it's an odd departure from the norm of partisanship. What we're observing now is the norm. Um, that period was the exception. The problem is that period had a lot of nice properties in terms of these sorts of factual or technocratic things. Um, and so what we have to work out as a society is how do we, how do we, you know, create some factual basis we can all agree on while having very strong partisan disagreements, because that is not going away anytime soon. Right. 
Well, I was hoping that we could wrap up this section of the podcast on a more optimistic note than um, racism seems to be the one strategy that <laughs> leads to bipartisanship. Um, but, uh, but we are out of time. <laughs> so we're going to wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. But this time we have our guest, Brendan Nyhan, and he's going to have the honor of taking the pick. Well, thank you. Um, I, I thought I would, I would share three recommendations for your listeners that are related to the issues we've been talking about today. Uh, two are books about selective perception and selective exposure um, that are mass market books but do a good job of, of summarizing the, the, the academic research and making it accessible. Uh, the first is called True Enough by Farhad Manju, who people may know from Slate.com. And the second is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, uh, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. Um, I'm about halfway through that one myself, but I, I can already uh, recommend it on what I've read so far. Um, so if, if people are interested in the issues I've been raising, those are great places to learn more. Um, but to end on an optimistic note, since I was <laughs> Mr. Doom and Gloom in the previous segment, um, I, 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 if, if your more ambitious mi- listeners might want to check out a political science book called The Macro Polity by Robert Erickson, Michael McEwen, and James Stimson, which is, uh, I think, a, a, a extremely impressive uh, summary Uh, of the argument that the public in the aggregate is much smarter than we give it credit for. And I think it's something that will, uh, people will look back on as a, as a very important academic work and something that made me at least feel better about democracy. Brendan, yeah. I, uh, I appreciate the attempt to end on a, a high note. I was a little afraid that we were going to lose our entire listener base <laughs> who, who would give up in depression and we'd be left with no one. So that's- I, I agree with you, Brendan. I, of those three, I read um, uh, the, the one about mistakes were made by not by me. In fact, we had the uh, author of the, as a speaker for the New York City Skeptics here in, uh, in the city. And uh, it, was a, it, it is definitely a fascinating book and something that more, re- more people should read. Great title, too. Yes. yes. <laughs> So, Brendan, it's been a pleasure having you uh, join us tonight. Um, We are out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>